0: Thank you, Steve. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here at the Parkway Church. Welcome. Uh, thank you for being here today. We will be in uh, Romans 12, 14 through 21, as Steve read. As you uh, make your way there uh, in your Bible or on your device or whatever it might be, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. So this past summer, my wife threw me a party for my 40th birthday. So it was in, uh, in August. And I know some of you are thinking, he doesn't look 40, but uh, that's okay. But uh, uh, for my 40th birthday, my wife threw me a party and it was an 80s theme. And uh, so I was born in 78, but I grew up in the, 70, uh, in the 80s. And, uh, and so we had this 80-themed party. And so I decided to dress up like one of my favorite characters uh, from 80s cinema. That is Marty McFly from uh, Back to the Future. And so I had the vest, I had the jean jacket, I had all of these uh, different things. Uh, but the day of the party, I realized I'm missing one thing, and this is uh, a really important part of the the outfit, and that is suspenders. I thought I had some suspenders from my wedding or something, but uh, I didn't, and so uh, I decided last minute I needed to go to Target. And, uh, and so um, I took my daughter, uh, Larkin, with me. I thought it would be kind of a fun little daddy-daughter date while uh, Casey... Uh, kind of got the house ready for the party. And so we take off to Target, and we go, and I find some $7 suspenders, which is uh, perfect, unless they would have been like 6 or 5 That would have been even better. But uh, got these suspenders and then had told Larkin that I would get her some sort of uh, present, uh, a gift uh, while we were there. And so we walk up and down the aisles of Target, and I'm trying to kind of help her to determine what it is that she wants, because she wants a lot of things that... Uh, are just ugly, and, uh, and so uh, there were all kinds of like monster creature stuff toys that she thought would be great, and I thought, let's go through so, something a little bit cuter, and so we settled on this, uh, this dog and uh, named it Cookie, and, uh, and so we uh, go and we check out, and we walk out to the parking lot, and I'm getting her back into the car after having this great time at Target, and then all of a sudden, as I'm leaning into the car, putting her into her car seat, uh, there's this car that honks. And so I look up to see what's going on, and there's a car that is waiting to get into the parking spot that's right next to me, but because I'm trying to get my daughter in, my door is kind of blocking the spot. So I think, well, there's not a whole lot I can do about it at this point, and, uh, and so I just kind of go about my business trying to get her in. My daughter is very wiggly, so this is a very long process. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, the car honks again, and, uh, and then revs its engine. Like they had put it into neutral, and, uh, and then just rev the engine. And now uh, I, I'm just totally confused because I look around and the parking lot is like 90% empty. Uh, in fact, uh, the spot that's next to me isn't even the closest spot. And, uh, and so apparently it was this person's favorite spot or it had a sign that said "reserved for psychopaths who just want to torment dads or something like that. It's a big sign. And, uh, and so... Uh, i 'm trying to get her in the car. This person is trying to get into this spot the, they 're just continually honking and uh, and so now I go from being confused to i 'm starting to get a little bit of uh, a little bit angry and uh, and so uh, I finally get her in i uh, I shut the door and uh, and the car lurches forward and literally almost runs over my foot. just comes within like an inch or two. Of, uh, of running over my foot, and I'm just like, what in the world is happening? The person gets out and, uh, and just unleashes this flood of obscenities uh, to me. And, uh, and, and in that flood of obscenities, using uh, different language than I'll use uh, for the purpose of the illustration, but uh, tells me that I'm not the only person in the world. And I think, but I'm nearly the only person in the parking lot. <laughs> it's almost completely empty. But I don't say that. I'm actually pretty polite, which actually, I think, makes her a little bit uh, angrier at, uh, at me. And then she wanted me to know that she knew all of the four-letter words and some of the three-letter words as well. And, uh, and so she walks off. I get back into my car, uh, put my seatbelt on, uh, pull out of the parking spot, and then I just slam and No, I didn't slam on her car. <laughs> uh, I just drove away. And for the first, like, uh, two minutes of my drive, the entire time, I'm just thinking of all of these different uh, sarcastic sort of comments that I could have made, funny comments that I could have made. That's how my mind works. My mind is minutes slower than, uh, than Zach's. Zach's is just like instantly there, not mine. It'll take me, you know, three days later, I'll come up, ah, I should have said that. And so, uh, so for like two minutes or so, I'm just thinking of all these, and I'm right about the time I think of this sort of perfect verbal vindication for myself. I'm just all of a sudden overcome by this sense of compassion. For someone that is so overwhelmed by life, by sin, by whatever it is that's going on in her life. That, that she would uh, get so bent out of shape about a parking spot. And so I began to pray for her. And I'll just be honest, it was hard. It was really hard for me to pray for her. In fact, everything in our text this morning is going to be hard. Now it's not that this is, these are really difficult doctrines. It's not like we're talking about the doctrine of predestination. Or uh, we're talking about spiritual gifts. Or we're talking about different eschatological theories about when Jesus is going to come back, and tribulation, and millennium, and all these kinds of things. That's not why it's hard. It's not difficult in terms of the doctrine. It's difficult in regards to the application. And, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to look in here. We're going to see that we're called to bless those who persecute us, to not be haughty or wise in our own sight, to live peaceably, to never avenge ourselves, So these are fairly easy for us to understand. There's nothing that I'm going to say today that's going to be novel, and yet these are very, very difficult for us to apply. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to just begin by opening in a word of prayer, and we can ask the Lord for grace to help us to do what we cannot do on our own. So would you begin just by praying for yourself? Ask that the Lord would give you a heart that is inclined to Him, a heart that is uh, willing to listen and to uh, heed and to obey and then would you pray that for those around you as well for the church for your family for friends for strangers and then would you pray for me there some sometimes in preaching the text just comes together and and i just confess this passage was really difficult whether that's from my own pride or lack of wanting to apply these things or from spiritual warfare or uh, what uh, it was difficult and so would you pray for all these things so father we do ask for your help this morning lord we just trust that uh, you are good and you do good and you have revealed to us what is good for us this is the way that we should walk the way in which your son walked and uh, and so we pray for your help this morning because you're a good father so we pray all these things in christ's name amen we'll begin in verse uh, 14 which says bless those who persecute you Bless and do not curse them. So again, th- th- this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. Again, not difficult because we don't understand what it means, but difficult because everything in human nature opposes this. You know how a doctor will take one of those uh, rubber knee hammers—I think that's the official name—and uh, and they hit you on the knee, and then you are kind of—they're tra- trying to test your uh, sort of reflex, your innate response. Well, that's what these sort of passages do for, uh, for us. The, that reflex is kind of similar to the human heart. Our innate, our instinctual response to persecution or to abuse or to mistreatment or to oppression or to offense, our innate instinctual response is anger, is cursing, is fighting. Everything about this verse is offensive. Everything about this verse, in fact, is impossible for the natural heart. And yet the regenerate heart, the heart that has been born again uh, through the new covenant, the new nature has been given this new disposition or at least the capacity to react differently such that love has now become the expectation and the ethic of the kingdom. And so we see that all over the place in Scripture. This is not something that's just limited to one passage in Romans chapter 12. For example, Matthew 5, 44, Jesus says, "'But I say to you, love your enemies.'" And pray for those who persecute you. In Luke 6, 27 through 28, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Or Peter, in his epistle, 1, uh, 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. So here's what I want to do with this passage. First, I want to define persecution. Our passage talks about persecution. Second, I want to talk about why this is so difficult. And then lastly, I want to just give us a little bit of uh, practical advice. I want to begin, what is persecution? Well, the overwhelming meaning uh, in the majority of places where you will see this this Greek word uh, in the New Testament, the underlying meaning is mistreatment or abuse or oppression or something like that on the basis of, uh, of uh, beliefs or religion. So that's kind of the main nuance, if you will, of the passage, mistreatment or abuse on the basis of religion. But then again, we'll see similar commands throughout Scripture uh, that aren't really restricted to uh, just... Uh, uh, things that uh, have to do with your belief or your faith. And so uh, there's a sense in which this passage kind of has a proverbial feel. There's sort of this, uh, this generalized sense in which the, uh, the, the ethic, the command here to love our enemies, to, to, to bless those who persecute us, isn't just those who persecute us for our faith. There's a sense in which any abuse, any mistreatment, any oppression, any offense... Whether that happens on the mission field or that happens in your home or in your office or in traffic or even like a Target parking lot uh, or something like that. So we might say that persecution is any type of mistreatment or abuse, especially but not entirely as a result of your faith. So that's what persecution is And so why is this so hard to do? Well, uh, there's a number of reasons. I want to mention just two of them that we'll see kind of over and over and over again, uh, not only in this uh, particular verse, but in the entire context of verses 14 through uh, 21. And so the, the two reasons that I want to talk about first is our pride. That's one of the reasons that this passage is so difficult for us to apply in our own lives, for us to heed, for us to obey is because of our pride. We want our pound of flesh. We naturally want our eye for an eye. Not only that, but we have forgotten who we were. We've forgotten that we don't deserve God's grace. We think somehow that we don't deserve punishment, that we don't deserve cursing, that we don't deserve condemnation or whatever it might be. We think that we have deserved or merited or earned blessing. We've received grace, and yet we don't want to extend that grace to others. We've received grace, and yet we want others to receive justice, or others to receive judgment, or whatever it might be. We want others to receive vengeance, and we want to control that vengeance. We're not satisfied simply with them receiving vengeance. We want to be the one who exacts that vengeance. So that's the first problem uh, in, uh, in trying to apply this as our own pride. The second problem... Uh, is uh, an even deeper one, and that is unbelief. That is that we don't really believe in this biblical doctrine of eschatological uh, judgment or justice. What does eschatological mean? It's just a fancy word related to eschatology, which means end times. We don't really believe that there's going to be this end times judgment, that there's going to be a day of the Lord, there's going to be a day of judgment, a day of, uh, of justice. We don't really believe that every wrong will one day be righted. We have to curse. We have to fight. We have to do these things now because we don't trust really that God will eventually do so. And furthermore, not only that, but we don't really believe Jesus when he says things like Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Read that again. Don't just read that as a beatitude that you memorize, but read that as if this is actually true, because it is. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So obedience here to this command it's going to begin with this theological conviction, this theological conviction that begins with saying that you do not deserve grace. You have never merited or earned or deserved God's grace. Secondarily, it begins with this belief that God will ultimately judge any injustice and that God will reward those who have suffered unjustly. In other words, unless or until you believe this, this command is always going to seem foolish. It's going to seem uh, like your tires are just continually spinning and there's no traction. This is going to seem foolish. But Paul wasn't a fool. He wasn't naive. Even as he wrote this, he had been subjected to extreme persecution at the hands of his fellow Jews. Not only that, but the church in Rome that, that Paul is writing to was five, maybe six years away from a great fire that crippled the city. Some of you are familiar with this. A fire that would eventually be blamed upon the Christians uh, and, uh, and what begins the uh, Neronian uh, persecution when the emperor Nero blames the Christians for this fire that destroys the entire city and this fierce persecution erupts. And what's the result of this persecution? Well, Christians were wrapped in the hides of animals and allowed uh, thrown to wild dogs and beasts to tear them apart. Christians were uh, uh, nailed or tied uh, onto stakes or crucified, and they were covered in wax and tar, and their bodies were set on fire in order to illuminate Nero's garden parties and the way in and out of the city. In other words, there's this extreme persecution that's just around the corner. With all that on the horizon, Paul's going to command the church in Rome And by extension, our churches today, and he's going to tell us to bless those who persecute us. This is a really interesting text because it kind of reverses the typical text that you might read when it comes to persecution. I have heard dozens upon dozens upon dozens of sermons in my life about how we are to pray for the persecuted church, that we are to pray for those in India or uh, those in China or those in the Middle East or those in North Korea or on and on we could go with places where there is persecution. And yes and amen, we should do that. But I've heard dozens of sermons on that. I've heard zero sermons in my life unless I actually go and seek it out in regards to this text on how we are to pray for those who are the persecutors. The Bible doesn't just command us to pray for the persecuted. The Bible commands us to pray for the persecutors, the ones who are doing the persecution. But isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? You remember what He said? Even as He's being crucified, He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And not merely Jesus, you might think, well, that's just Jesus. He's able to do things that you and I can't do. But even in the book of Acts, we say, "That's what Stephen does is he's being stoned to death. He says, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." But this is impossible apart from grace. You might even be sitting there in your chair today thinking of people in your mind who this applies to people who have offended you, people who have abused you, people who have persecuted you. And you might think this is absolutely impossible. And I'm here to tell you it is impossible apart from grace. But we've spent 11 chapters working through just the heights and depth and width of God's grace and love and mercy to prepare us for this sort of command. So, what does it mean for us to bless? It tells us to bless those who persecute us. What does that mean? In later verses, uh, we're going to get to some more practical application. But for now, I would just want to begin with this pray. Pray for them. And what do we pray? Well, I'm quick to want to pray imprecatory prayers. You know that word, imprecatory prayers? An imprecatory prayer is uh, a type of prayer that you will encounter in psalms where the psalmist will say something uh, where it ta- uh, the psalmist is uh, praying that God would curse his enemies. So an imprecatory prayer would be like me uh, being persecuted, me being abused, me being offended, and then praying that the Lord would drop a bus on someone's head or that this person would lose their job or that this person would be totally humiliated somehow. That's an imprecatory prayer. And that's appropriate in the context of Psalms, but that's not what it's telling us to do here. It says to bless, not curse, those who persecute us. So I think we pray for two things. We pray for forgiveness, and we pray, pray for repentance. And again, I realize that for some of us, as we think about the people that have abused us, the people that have mistreated us, the people who have persecuted us, that we might not even be able to get our lips to speak those words of forgiveness and repentance for those who have hurt us, in which case I would encourage you to think about yourself and your sin and God's grace and the eventual day of eternal justice and judgment. We could talk about this particular passage all day, but we'll come back to it uh, as we move along. So let's move for the sake of time to verse 15 which says rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Before we really get into this, I want to say something that uh, should go without saying, but needs to be said. Does that make sense? I think so. Uh, and, And that is that this text is not commending that we rejoice in sin. Verse 15 is going to tell us to rejoice with those who rejoice, And yet, an application, an appropriate application of this text is not to say that as we watch a YouTube video of New York's uh, state legislators cheering the fact that late-term abortion is now legal in New York, we don't rejoice with that. Or whenever your neighbor comes to you and says, I finally found uh, a woman who can make me feel and who can appreciate me the way that my wife never has, we don't rejoice with that. In other words, we don't rejoice with sin, We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. But an, uh, a, an inappropriate application of this would be to think that we rejoice uh, with, uh, with sin. To, to be honest, much of what our culture rejoices in, we should lament. Because we aren't to rejoice over sin. We talked about this a little bit last week. If love is not mere affirmation or acceptance, but instead this sort of dedication to the ultimate good of another then love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices and speaks in the truth, as 1 Corinthians 13 might say. So with that said, why is this passage so difficult for us? Why is it difficult for us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep? And I think there's a number of reasons that you could point out. Pride, again. Jealousy, indifference, apathy, busyness, whatever it might be, that we're far too self-absorbed or maybe we're even family-absorbed. We take our biological family to the exclusion of others to notice we're too busy to notice the joys and sorrows of others. Uh, Many of you know that uh, last year my family had a little bit of a health scare with my daughter, so uh, as uh, as I'm in the ambulance with her uh, and as I'm sitting in the hospital with her, it is really easy for me to weep with her. And yet, just to be honest, it is much more difficult for me to experience that same level of emotion for people that might be in my extended family or people that might be a part of my spiritual family or whatever it, uh, uh, it might uh, be. Perhaps you can relate to that sort of idea that it's really easy for you to rejoice with some people. It's easy for you whenever your wife or your husband or your child experiences some sort of joy, it's easy for you to rejoice with them. Whenever they're experiencing some sort of sorrow, it's easy for you to lament with them, for, for you to weep with them, and yet it's much harder with the church or with your friends or with your co-workers or with your neighbors. And so I think one of the main threats to us uh, applying this text is this sort of cultural contentment that we have with shallow and superficial relationships, that we might know each other's names, but we don't really know each other's dreams or desires or hopes or hurts or scars or struggles. You See, this verse isn't just commending this sort of white-knuckled obedience where we just kind of muster up some fake feeling of happiness, someone else is, is experiencing joy and so you just kind of put a smile on your face and you just kind of grin your way through it. That's not what this is talking about. At all. Last week we read that love should be genuine, love should be sincere. So, this passage isn't about lip service, it's actually about entering into the sorrows and joys of others. And that only comes through relationship not Facebook relationship, or Instagram relationship, or Twitter relationship, or any sort of social media relationship, but genuine relationship, accountability, vulnerability, community, the desire to be known and to know others. You see, if your life is really intertwined with others and the greater degree to which it is intertwined with others, then this command suddenly becomes a natural overflow of love, which is certainly more than a feeling, but not less than a feeling. By the way, this is one of the reasons why simply attending church doesn't fulfill the biblical mandate. In order to be obedient, you must be the church, not merely come to church. You have to be the church. Your, your life must overlap with others in order for love to overflow. That's why we here at Parkway are so passionate about venues like theological equipping. We're so passionate about community groups. We're so passionate about uh, lingering after services and member meetings and, uh, and, and uh, nights of worship and prayer because these are little opportunities for the church to become smaller, for our lives to overlap, for our lives to intertwine so that we might know each other and to be known As easy for you as it is, as easy as it is for you to weep when your child is weeping, as easy as it is for you to rejoice when your parent is rejoicing, it should be that easy, that authentic, that natural within the context of the local church. Within the context not of your biological family, but your spiritual family. So something is profoundly wrong with us when we don't have those sorts of connections when it's difficult for us to rejoice and to weep appropriately, and that's something that is wrong with us is pride, which relates to our next verse. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You might have noticed that pride is kind of lurking behind all of these verses, every single verse that we're exploring today, one of the main dangers to your applying it to your life is pride. That the proud heart curses those who curse it. The proud heart is jealous when others rejoice, so it refuses to rejoice. The proud heart is indifferent, or maybe even glad when others weep, and so it doesn't weep along with it. When it comes to associating with the lowly, the proud heart thinks it's above that. I'm too rich. I'm too educated. I'm too important. Pride boasts in socioeconomic class or gender or ethnicity or graduate degrees or whatever it, it might be. So you since sin is this great leveler of humanity. Boast in all of the accomplishments that you want. Apart from Christ, you're a worm. You're a mist. You're a mere mortal who is guilty of an infinite offense against your immortal Creator. And then by grace... You're saved. By nothing except for sheer mercy and grace, you're saved. And redemption is this other great leveler. For everything you are now is described by these words that we've considered over and over and over again, which is in Christ. Every blessing that you have is because you are in Christ. He is your redemption, He is your righteousness, He is your sanctification, He is your wisdom, He is everything. What do you have that you have not been given? Nothing is the answer. So pride is the opposite of wisdom. It's anti-wisdom. Pride isolates and exalts itself. Whereas the humble love, unity, and community. Consider that again. The humble love, unity, and community. The humble desire to know others and to be known by others to bear each other's burdens to love to serve to forgive to encourage and all the other dozens or so of other one another's that we read about in scripture the humble love that because the humble knows that it needs that it needs others the humble knows that it has blind spots so where that's lacking where this love for community, where this love for vulnerability, where this love for authenticity, where this love for transparency, where all of these sorts of things is lacking, it's a, side, uh, a sign of pride. It isn't primarily a matter that you're just too busy, or you're too introverted, or you're too proud. Uh, I'm sorry, but you're, or you're too introverted, or you're too tired, but it's because you're too proud. You're too self-centered, you're too self-absorbed, you're too self-deceived to realize that you need others and they need you, the humble delight to show honor and to associate with the lowly and to live in harmony. They delight in peace. I saw a good illustration of this uh, just really quickly uh, one time in, uh, in Japan. If you ever go to, uh, to Japan, uh, you'll notice that the escalators there are not uh, American-sized, they're Japanese-sized. And, uh, and so there's no passing on a Japanese escalator. Uh, it is just single file. And, uh, and so uh, I uh, was there on a trip and uh, I was watching and this businessman, he, at least he appeared to be, is in this really nice looking suit. I don't know anything about suits, but it looked nice. Had a tie, so that's, that makes it nice, right? And so uh, he goes up to the escalator and at the exact time that he gets to the escalator, uh, a guy that's wearing some sort of handyman janitor sort of outfit also gets there. And, uh, and so the, uh, uh, the, the handyman, the, the janitor, whatever he might have been, he kind of bows to the other guy as if to say, you go ahead. And then the businessman bows to him, and the janitor bows back, and the businessman bows back, and the janitor bows back. And then I realize I'm about to throw up because I'm so jet-lagged, and uh, so I left. <laughs> And I didn't see how this sort of battle of self-deference ended. I like to think seven years later, if I were to go back to that escalator, they're still just going at it. Uh, but that's kind of an illustration of this text and what we talked about uh, last week, the outdoing one another in showing honor, that there's this sense in which we are to, uh, in our humility, that we're to associate with the lowly, that we are to, uh, another way to actually translate this is not just to associate with the lowly person, but to do the lowly task. But there's no task that's too menial for us. There's no task that's actually below us in spite of our education, in spite of our uh, talents or gifts or whatever it might be or position. And so live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The humble delight to show honor, to associate with the lowly and to live in harmony. In other words, the delight in peace, which is the theme of verses 17 through 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Yet again, we see this importance of thinking. We've, we've mentioned this a number of times as we've been exploring Romans 12, the importance of thinking in regards to faithful living, that we are to give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, let me just first say what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean do what other people think is honorable. Some people think it's honorable to go into a mother's womb and to tear apart a child. That is not honorable. Some people think it's honorable for you to engage in uh, relations with someone who is not your wife. That is not honorable. Some people think it's honorable... Uh, To uh, divorce your spouse for irreconcilable differences or to marry someone of the same sex or whatever it might be. The text is not saying do the things that other people think are honorable. That's fear of man. The text is saying to do what is actually honorable. Not as defined by our culture around us but as, as defined by the word of God. In other words, we are to give thought to biblical truth so that we might know what is actually honorable and that we might then therefore live that uh, in front of a uh, watching world to seek to live that out in front of others. And then he tells us after going on from there he tells us to live peaceably with all, but he adds a couple of qualifications here. He says if possible and uh, and so far as it depends on you. And those qualifications are really important because they do a couple of things for us. First they kind of reveal how limited we are. In other words, we're not in control. We're not the prince of peace. We're not the one who actually brings peace. We're not the one who actually can reconcile things. We're not the one who can actually resolve conflict. We do our little part, but we're actually fairly limited when it comes to these sorts of things. So it kind of robs us of our Jesus complex, our Savior complex, our nativity, our pride, or whatever it might be that thinks, I must have peace and I'm going to do it no matter what it uh, costs me. So that's the first thing. It, it do, that it does, that it just helps us to see that we're to be faithful with no guarantees that our faithfulness will produce the results that we desire. Speaking of which, that's the second thing that it does, that these qualifications, if possible, and so far as it depends on you, also rids us of pragmatism. We talked a little bit about pragmatism and theological equipping this morning. Pragmatism is kind of the idea that says it's no hope, and therefore it's no use trying. Why talk to your elders about a concern? They're not going to change their minds anyway. Why point out a sin in a friend if it's going to hurt their relationship? Why do marriage counseling if my spouse will never change? Why discipline my kid if it might hurt their fragile ego? At the end of the day, the Bible calls us to faithfulness, not results. You're responsible to be faithful to God's commands. You're not responsible for the results. The Bible commands you to rebuke, The Bible commands you to correct. The Bible commands you to encourage. The Bible commands you to ask for forgiveness. The Bible commands you to make amends. The Bible commands you to leave your gift before the altar to pursue peace and so forth. It doesn't matter if you think it will work or not. This should be very freeing for us because it means we don't have to obsess over what's going to be the result. We just simply obsess over what has God commanded of us. And we pursue faithfulness. So this should free us. This doesn't excuse us From not pursuing peace, it frees us to do so. And if you're seeking peace, then you're not seeking revenge, among other things, which leads us to verses 19 through 20. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Some of you will have a a chance to practice this very text uh, tonight at a uh, Super Bowl party. And uh, I just found out that most of my community group who's coming over uh, for uh, our Super Bowl party, most of them are rooting for the wrong team. I'll let you fill in the blank with whatever you think the wrong team is. But most of my group is, because they're fools. And uh, and so most of my group is doing the wrong thing. But what am I going to do? I'm going to feed them. I'm going to give them something to drink. And I'm going to heap burning coals on their head. Notice how this begins. It says beloved, which seems really out of place. You have this sort of, this, uh, it's almost like, uh, like a boxer that's just hitting you and hitting you and hitting you and hitting you with command after command after command after command throughout uh, Romans 12. And then all of a sudden you get to this word beloved and it makes you kind of stop and pause and slow down. It seems kind of out of place in this list of all of these different commands and yet it makes perfect sense because the reason that we can follow this command is because we are beloved. In other words, we can be hated by men because we're beloved by God. So with that in mind, I want you to notice that there's one negative, and then there's two positive commands in this text. One negative and two positives. The negative command is to never avenge yourself. And that is possible... Because God will avenge you, which is the first positive command that he gives. In other words, leave it to the wrath of God. You see, the biblical problem isn't vengeance itself, as if the Bible is a, uh, against vengeance. The Bible is all smiles and giggles and happy thoughts or whatever it might be. Go read Revelation 19. This is what it says there. I think we'll put it up on screen. That Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of Of God Almighty. The Bible is not against vengeance. Go read Revelation 20, where Satan and those who serve him are thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible is not against wrath. The Bible is not against vengeance. The Bible is not against retaliation. The Bible is against you taking it because it doesn't belong to you. You see, it's not your glory that's been defiled, it's not your kingdom that's been distorted and defaced. It's God's glory. It's God's kingdom. And so He is the one that has the right to retaliate. He is the one that has the right to avenge. He is the one that has the right to vengeance and restitution and judgment. Those things belong to Him, not to you. So the problem is not wrath. The problem is not vengeance. The problem is you taking something that does not belong to you. And if leaving it to the wrath of God, which is the first positive command, then this second positive command seems downright impossible. It sounds silly. Because it tells us not only to withhold vengeance, but also to extend good. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Love your enemy, as Jesus would say. I want to say first, before we really get into this, um, what does this not mean? Does uh, Does this mean that you can never protect your family if someone breaks in? Or that Christians can't be soldiers or police officers who might have to retaliate at some point against evil? Come back next week. Our text is going to actually deal with some of these as we look at Romans 13 and the role uh, of government. Uh, But but for now, I would just say that it seems clear from the whole of Scripture that uh, that there are times where it might be appropriate to defend yourself or others. In fact, there are times when it might be very unloving for you not to do so. So this doesn't mean that you can't ever protect your family or you can't serve in, uh, in those capacities, although there's certain things that you might not be able to do. Uh, in those roles. Uh, But this passage ultimately isn't about self-defense. It's about laying down your rights and privileges and so forth for others. And why? Well, because God demands it. But why in the context of this passage? He gives us a reason. He says the reason why is in order to heat burning coals on his head. Well, what in the world does that mean? There's basically two different ways that that phrase has been interpreted throughout Christian history. Unfortunately, they contradict each other, so they can't both be right. But here's the first: the first is that heaping coals is a sign of repentance, and so uh, 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 allegedly or, or apparently, in uh, in some ancient Near Eastern cultures, there was this practice of taking uh, coals and uh, and and carrying them in a basket on your head as a sign of uh, of repentance. And so, archaeologists have kind of di- or anthropologists have discovered this practice. Uh, the problem with thinking that's what Paul's referring to is twofold. One, there's no evidence that Paul knew of this practice. Two, there's no evidence that this practice actually is as old as, uh, as Scripture, uh, besides the fact that this isn't just something that Paul comes up with. He's actually quoting here from the book of Proverbs. So it doesn't matter if the practice goes back as far as Paul's concerned. It matters what did the original author of Proverbs mean whenever he wrote this. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, that's the first way to take it, though, that, uh, that by doing good to others, you'll cause them to repent. Your kindness leads them to repentance, and so they can rejo- you can then rejoice at their repentance. So do good to them so that they would repent, and then therefore you can be uh, happy together. That's the first way to take it. The second way is kind of the exact opposite uh, of that, and that is that uh, heaping coals, uh, burning coals on the head means to increase their accountability for their sin. In other words, when your kindness doesn't lead them to repentance, you thus make them all the more worthy of judgment. Because then they've sinned against you by responding to your goodness with, uh, with evil. And I think this is honestly the preferable reading for, uh, for a few reasons, uh, the first one being that the imagery of burning coals throughout the Old Testament doesn't really refer to repentance, it refers to, uh, to judgment. And so you can just look up, for the sake of time, I won't walk you through all those, but just look up at some point in the Old Testament the number of places that burning coals is seen as a sign of God's judgment, uh, a sign of, uh, of vindication. So That's the first reason that the imagery of burning coals throughout the Old Testament tends to refer uh, to that. The second one, would be this idea would then parallel what Paul had previously said, which is do good to your enemies now because God will show wrath later. God will avenge you later. That's the same sort of idea here, that you can feed them now, and if they don't respond in uh, in repentance, then God will ultimately judge them. And third, that would seem to fit with the overarching context of Romans where Paul has spent chapters talking about how God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And when it does not, the, repi- the recipients of that kindness are all the more accountable for their sin. So I think that's the more likely reading that Paul is saying, that we are to do good to our enemies and, uh, and that we simply leave it to the wrath of God. And uh, that burning coals is a sign of that. But here's the deal. It doesn't really matter. As far as our application of the text, as far as, as, far as our interpretation of the text, it matters quite a bit. But as far as our application of the text, it doesn't matter. Because we're not the ones who's doing the burning coals. That's up to God. So figuring out what a phrase means doesn't really matter as far as our responsibility and obedience. Whether our doing good results in burning coals of repentance or burning coals of wrath. Our job is the same. Our job is to do good. Our job is to be gracious and kind. Let God work it out. He will show your enemy mercy or He will judge them, but that's not on you. What is on you is the command for you to show grace and mercy and kindness. And if that's the command for our enemies, how much more for our spouse, our kids, our parents, our siblings, our neighbors, our co-workers, and on and on. That's another one of the reasons that this text, Romans uh, Romans 12, 14 through 21, is so difficult for us because it's so universal. We can't simply think of our enemies as being flesh and blood, these particular people, We can't simply think of those who persecute us as being those who would stone us for our faith. There's this application of love, this ethic of love that uh, would permeate any area of our lives. Let's look at the last verse, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the context, to to act out of vengeance is to succumb to evil. So in other words, read verse 21 in light of what we've read in 19 through 20. And uh, to act out of vengeance is to succumb to evil. Anyone here a Star Wars fan? I know a couple of people who are like Star Wars fanatics. You've actually like been to Comic-Con and so forth. Shame on you. But uh, those of you who are Star Wars fans or have ever seen it, maybe you're not a fan, you've just seen it. You know that kind of lashing out in anger, what does that do? Leads to the dark side, right? And yet, what was Luke able to do When Luke is faced with the evil of Vader and the emperor or whatever it might be, what does he do? In that moment, he resists. He does good. And in doing good, what does he do? He overcomes the evil. That's kind of an illustration of this. Throughout this passage, we've seen these two themes that go hand in hand. You've seen on one hand, love and humility. And these things are intertwined together that pride hates or is indifferent to others and lusts and craves and yearns for judgment and wrath upon our enemies. And here's the reason: because it forgets that we were enemies of God. And we were guilty of a far greater crime against Him than we uh, than our enemies are against us. Imagine for a second if God did to His enemies what we long to desire to do to ours, we would have been destroyed. Imagine. If Jesus would have called down a host of angels to destroy those who tortured and crucified Him. Instead, we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, 23-24, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. While we were still enemies, Christ died us. That's the ultimate expression of good overcoming evil. That's the heart of the gospel, and that's what empowers this entire section. So don't read Romans 12 as if it's kind of floating, isolated off in space. Read it in the context of Romans 1 through 11, in the foundation of the gospel and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the kingdom of evil has been overcome by the kingdom of God through the death of His Son. So here's what I want to do. I just want to End by reading another passage. I want to, as I'm reading this, I want to ask you uh, to. You're welcome to read along with me, or if you want, you can close your eyes and just let me read this over to uh, over you. And the reason I want to read this particular passage is because it is another passage that's going to take all of the various dots that we've seen in our text this morning. Dots like uh, humility, and persecution, and suffering, and love, and good deeds. It's going to take all of those different dots which look really disjointed and it's going to connect all of those dots for us and draw a picture and that picture is going to be a straight line to the death of Christ. That's where the passage is going to go. It's going to take all of these different sort of uh, what seem to be disjointed elements and it's going to uh, really funnel those things down into the death of Christ which empowers our obedience. So 1 Peter chapter 3 Verses 8-18, through which says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And here's where it comes together, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's our hope. That's our calling. It's impossible apart from grace, but made possible by the death and resurrection of Christ. So let's pray as the men come forward for communion. Father, I thank You for uh, the text today, a text that is uh, contrary to our thoughts, a text that's contrary to our feelings, Our emotions, our natural, instinctual, sort of innate response to any abuse or mistreatment. I pray that You would help us. Lord, I pray that by the same power that raised Your Son from the dead, that You might give us hearts that long to be obedient. Hearts that long to lay down our lives for the sake of others. That that are willing to be abused, that are willing to be offended, that are willing to be mistreated for the sake of of Your name and Your glory and Your renown, because we know that we don't deserve grace, because we know that there will be ultimate justice, and because we know that there is a reward coming for those who endure. So we pray all these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name, Amen.